All right, so we're in Mark 12, verse 13. Mark 12, 13. Father, as we now get into your word, just thank you for the precious people that have gathered here on this Sunday morning. We know that this is not the only place where this is happening. It's happening all over our city, all over the state, all over this country, and all over the world. It's amazing just to take a moment to think about how many Christians gather on a Sunday morning in all kinds of different situations, Lord, in different buildings. Some of them are in parks. Some of them are literally underground. And all of them have a common theme. They've been saved by your grace, captured by your love, driven by your spirit. And this morning, Lord, as we're here, we can, we want to confess together, we, we are very fragile people, Lord. We can be very self-centered. We can, we can sometimes just focus on ourselves and nothing else. And God, we need your help. But it's not just about that. It's not just about the things that we fall short in. It, it's that we have to recapture how amazing your love is how patient you are, how good you are, how much grace you've showed each of us. If, if this United States of America, Lord, or this world is going to find answers, they're, they're not going to be found in our own humanism, our own thinking. They're going to be found ultimately in you, in your truth and your love. And as we study your word now, and we look at people who came to you and asked you questions and I'm sure we all have questions in our souls as well. Um, I pray we'll be listening to your answers with maybe a more keen ear than we've ever had before. This is going to be some familiar ground to us, but Lord, it's ground we need to hear as you answer questions about taxes and death and ultimately about love. You are love. The Bible says God is love. And Lord, I pray that you would renew and refresh the love that is in our hearts and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that all distractions would be set aside as we look to hear from you now, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you, and we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Q&A with Jesus is the title of the message. I've talked to many Christians over the years, and I suppose that we all have a list of questions that we think we're going to take into the throne room. Do you guys have your list? Some of you have written them down. (laughs) You've been pondering them. Some of them you've been able to X off your list. Okay, I kind of get that one now, yeah. Right? Well, there were people who had questions in Jesus' day, too, and it would have been amazing and It will be amazing ultimately to plumb the depths of God as we spend, we're going to spend eternity with the Lord and it's going to be amazing. I'm not sure we're going to be asking a whole lot of questions, but maybe we have more questions now than we'll be asking them because I think we'll find all of our answers in the face of Jesus. And, and, And it's hard to even fathom what that is going to be fully like. But we're going we're gonna to watch some questions brought to Jesus, and I think it's pretty insightful, the questions that are brought, because one is about taxes. <laughs> Don't you guys have questions about taxes? I do. <laughs> like whether or not they should be paid, you know, things like that. They're going to ask him a question about life and death, namely the resurrection. And then they're going to ask him what's the greatest commandment or 
I, just to put it another way, what, what should we be living for? What's the most important thing to live for? And Jesus is going to answer all three questions. The sad reality about the questions, though, at least in two of the cases, is that they're asked with malicious intent. See, they're not really asked to get answers like, I want to change. They were asked to trap him. And sometimes when I step back and I look at our world, and I think Shane probably prayed a prayer that is true for all of us, we get kind of sick and tired of, you know, all the stuff that's going on in our world and all the mess that is out there. And, and sometimes we just want to kind of coil up into a little ball and maybe go hide somewhere and not deal with reality. And, and that's, that's how we feel sometimes, not only as people of a, citizens of a country, but even people of the church. Let's be candid. Sometimes we get tired of dealing with people and problems and traffic and struggles both inside and outside the church. Some of you have a lot of tension in your personal relationships. Some of you are struggling at work and you're wondering, are there really answers to this thing called life? You know, people who are out there today are really asking that kind of basic question. And when we ask questions, um, you know, there's, there's a couple things that I look at. One is, are we asking the right questions? Because that's important. And then are we asking the right source for our answers? And we're, we're really good at, you know, making commentary about what we think should happen. But the question is, are there really solid answers to this thing called life? I think what we're going to find is that um, Jesus is going to address these questions with the idea in mind that we are image bearers of God. That is that we have a special place as humans. And that's something just to kind of keep in your thinking. And then another thing to, just to be thinking about is that when these questions are posed to Jesus, they're posed when he's just a few days away from the cross where he will make the ultimate act of love as he will lay down his life for the sins of the world. So when he's asked these questions, he's just about a couple days from the cross. So he will answer these questions, but there's, there's several different dynamics that are working. Let's pick up the, the text in Mark 12. We'll, we'll backtrack one verse for a second. Mark 12, verse 12. It says, And they were seeking to seize him, the religious leaders, yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable that we looked at last week, of the vine growers against them. And so they left him and went away. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now, Jesus has just put the religious leaders in their place, and now they have their fear of the people caused them not to seize him at that very moment, though they wanted to, but they were fearful. They feared the wrong thing. They feared man instead of God. Let me just say, generally speaking, here's how you can navigate your life well. If you fear God more than you fear man, you will be able to navigate your life well. If you do everything in your life based upon being a people pleaser, and what is so-and-so going to think of this, and what's so-and-so going to think of this, you're going to stay stuck. But if you wonder and, and you ponder, and I'm talking about consistently and at the forefront of your mind, you know, how you can please God. I think your life will fall into place. In Luke's parallel account, just turn there for a second, it's the next gospel to the right, Luke 20. Let's take a peek at how Luke says uh, the dynamics were working. Luke 20, look at verse 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament. Luke 20, 
verse 19, it says, And the scribes, 2019, and the chief priests tried to lay, lay hands on him that very hour. Luke 20, verse 19, And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And they watched him. The word watch there in Greek is a word that has to do with monitoring behavior. And sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. That would be Pontius Pilate. Let's go back to Mark's gospel. They were lurking in the shadows after he told this story of the vine growers. They knew he had spoken it about them. And one of the things that he said in the parable is that the, when the heir comes, when the son comes, they say, the, the evil vine growers say, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. And what Jesus was saying in that parable that I think I said at second service, I'm not sure I said at first service last week, is that Jesus was making clear in the parable that they, the religious leaders, knew who he was. They knew he was the heir, they knew he was the son of God, and they killed him anyway. Sometimes we think that people do things because maybe they just don't have all the light that they need. You know, maybe we, we look at the religious leadership and they, we say, well, you know, maybe they, maybe they just didn't see enough. Maybe, maybe they didn't encounter the miracles and so forth. And we can make our list. No, they knew exactly who he was. And Jesus revealed that by the parable. And that made them even more convicted and even more responsible. May I say that uh, this may imply that more people than we realize know exactly who God is. In fact, the Bible tells us just by the physical creation alone, people, get this, are without excuse. Just by the physical creation alone, people are without excuse. That tells me, frankly, folks, there are no true atheists walking around. Atheism is simply a cloak. It's a cloak to cover and do what I want to do. And so here's Jesus and they have set up, you know, these people who are going to act righteous to ask him some questions, but their questions are not the right motive. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you realize that all these questions that they're firing at you as a non-Christian to a Christian are simply a cloak to hang their hat on an excuse for not getting right with God? So there's too many hypocrites in the church and this and that and what about this and what about that? And look, we've probably, many of you in, in this room, before you became a Christian, maybe you did that very thing to your Christian friends. Maybe you were a total pain. Anybody want to confess it right now? Amen? And they came, Mark 12, 14, and said to him, Teacher, we know four things, that you are truthful, Mark 12, 14, unlike us, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, because they're pretenders, right? You defer to no one, number two. You are not partial to any, number three. And, but you teach the way of God in truth, number four. What a great description. All those things are true of Jesus. He was all of those things. And 1 John 2, 5 and 6 says, just to cut to the chase, verse 6 says, We as believers are to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John 2, verse 6. You're to live the same way that he lived. What was he? One, he was truthful. Verse 14. Two, he deferred to no one. Three, he was not partial to any. And four, he taught the way of God in truth. 
Now, sometimes we defer to people because we're human, but you get the point. Jesus Christ was authentic. He was real. He was not a phony. He did not pull any punches. He was gracious to those who sometimes wondered if they would receive grace and hard on those who were hypocrites, just like perhaps we should be. Mm. Hard on a hypocrite? Yeah, sometimes we should call out hypocrisy. Sometimes we should say to people, you know what? That's just not true. He was truthful. He was straight. And of course, all of what's said here is simply to butter him up. They are, they are using flattery to set him up for the question. And the question is about taxes. Verse 14, end of the verse. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? To pay or not to pay? That is the question. Have you ever been receiving flattery from someone and you start to realize that it's not real? We have to weigh flattery carefully. Somebody said flattery is kind of like chewing gum. It's kind of like bubble gum. Chew on it for a while, but don't swallow it. Right? Sometimes you, you're getting buttered up by somebody and, and you ever, have you ever thought this in your mind? Okay, I wonder what's coming next now. <laughs> you're a really good guy and this and that and oh by the way uh, usually it's a request that comes next right <laughs> I'm not saying all flattery is bad but their strategy was to perfume him with flattery the groups that come to him are quite interesting they're found in verse 13 the first group is Pharisees the religious leaders of the day you could call them the right wingers of the day and the Herodians were the left-wingers of the day. That's a little bit of a loose way to structure it, but the Herodians are just like their name sounds. They were beholden in league with the Herods. They, they had uh, realized that Rome was dominant over their nation, and they were finding a way to make the best of it, and they were, they were actually benefiting from it. They were the Herodians. They... Just like we are Christians with I-A-N-S at the end, they were Herodians, followers of the Herods. And so they were benefiting from the taxes in Rome and the setup and everything that was happening. Why do you think the Herodians were there with the Pharisees? Do you know that these two groups hated each other? They absolutely disdained each other, but they had one thing in common on this day. You know what it was? A common enemy. Jesus. And the Pharisees brought the Herodians there because they thought if Jesus says don't pay taxes to the Caesar, the Herodians are there to be witnesses of his treason. And if you were treasonous against Rome, you were dead. That's why they're there. See, Rome would tolerate different forms of religion and that kind of thing. They were okay with that. But the moment you started talking about the Caesar and you're not going to pay and maybe you're going to get other people not to pay the taxes, you're in deep trouble. And boy, did they have taxes in this day. Some of their, uh, in doing some research for this message, some of their goods, for example, were taxed so that they increased by a thousand percent. The average Jewish person, by the time they had paid all the tolls in Israel, all the taxes, income, and otherwise, and had to deal with even the religious duties that they had, it was typically about 40% of their income. And I know that doesn't sound too far-fetched a, for a modern American, amen? 
You know, you start looking at your income and you start looking at what you have to give money to in terms of taxes and insurance, and man, it flies away. Amen? Amen. And, uh, you know, you may be in that position right now. And so they say, they say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now remember, the whole question is just a ruse, right? It's just to set him up. But he, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Jesus, in Matthew's account, uh, calls them, I think it's in Matthew or Luke's account, he, co- he says to them, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Don't you love how Jesus was so politically correct, right? <laughs> you phonies. And then he asked for a coin. I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't have a coin. He asked for a coin. Remember, in, in Matthew's gospel, Somebody comes up and they says, hey, does your master pay the tax? And I think there it was the temple tax. And remember, Peter is sent and he's told to go catch a fish. And the first fish that he catches to open its mouth. And in that fish, he'll find a coin for the taxes. I've been praying for that for quite a while now. (laughs) But I can't even catch a fish. So it's a problem. I have a friend, he's now moved to Idaho, his name is Scott, and he was, his singular goal in life was to get Pastor Michael to catch a fish. So he took me on Big Bear Lake, woke me up at some ungodly hour, and I just told him, I don't like it, I don't, I prefer hitting the little white ball, you know? Come on, you gotta, you gotta, we got a fish finder, we got, we got, we got stuff. You can see the, you know. So... Finally, he caught a fish and handed me the pole so we could take a picture. <laughs> One of my family members took us up on this fishing trip, and we, we went, everybody's catching fish. I caught nothing. Finally, at this particular location, they have what's called the loser pond. <laughs> Anybody ever been to the loser pond? They cram all these fish in there, and if you didn't catch anything, they let you put your little hook in so you can feel good. And there's fish crammed in there. There's like no way you can't catch something. I threw my line in there. 40 minutes went by. I saw underwater meetings happening between fish. That's Pastor Michael up there. Don't let him catch it. Sad. Anyway. They thought they had put Jesus in a no-win situation. And when Jesus was a little boy, there was a revolt that happened. And it happened by the zealot movement. And the zealots refused resolutely to pay taxes. They, they would not. It's called the zealot movement. And in AD 70, when Jerusalem fell to the ground, one of the big reasons Jerusalem fell was because of the zealot movement. Because the zealot movement was trying to fight against Rome and they refused to pay taxes. So this was a huge issue. And those who have come, the Pharisees and the Herodians, think they have him in a no-win situation. Why? Because if he says, pay the tax, then the people are going to say, well, he's not loyal to Israel. He doesn't understand our problems, our pain. And if he says, uh, if he says to pay the tax, if he says don't pay the tax, of course, then the Herodians are standing there ready to arrest him. So there were three types of taxes in that day. The poll tax a type of income tax, but simply because you were there. A ground tax, one-tenth of your grain, wine, and oil, kind of like a property tax. And then they had an income tax as well. 
Then there are other things you're responsible for as a Jewish person. And so they said, shall we not, shall we pay, or shall we not pay? And Jesus, of course, asked for a coin. In, in Matthew's account, he said, show me the coin, or if you want to put it in modern vernacular, Jesus said, show me the money. <laughs> so they brought him a coin, and the coin was a denarius. It was a Roman coin, and the denarius was a, uh, a, a coin that you would earn for one day of common labor. So one day's wage for a common laborer. And it had Caesar's picture on it, and it called him divine. And the coin was even abominable to the Jews because Caesar's image was on there, and for some of them, just his very image was blasphemy because they, they believed that you shouldn't have any images. And then to call him some sort of God, to call him divine was even worse. He's the, he's the, the ruler of all, divine Augustus. Uh, I was reading this week that it said even on the coin that he was Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus. You know, he's it. He's the ruler. Verse 16, so they brought one, brought a coin to Jesus, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then, of course, in his famous response, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him because his answer blew their minds, right? Give me the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, or render it, and to God what belongs to God. And they were amazed. Wow, that's not what we expected to hear. <laughs> what do we do with that answer? I don't know. Did he get himself in trouble? I don't know. And this has been called by historians, the single greatest shaping statement of Western civilization. Because Jesus Christ made a, a comment about how society should work. And he did answer and he'd say, look, it's right to pay taxes because taxes do keep the government going and they, they fund things that are important to a society. They help keep order and, and of course, some financial stability. But he, but he said something that we need to pay attention to that's even more important. We are to render to God the things that belong to God. And look, this is the more important thing for us, is that we have an obligation to God. And when a society forgets its obligation to God, when it does not render to God the things that belong to God, think about it, brothers and sisters, a coin has an image and that coin may, may uh, you know, uh, depict something, a, a human leader that will so, soon be dust. But you have an image imprinted on you. You bear the image of who? Almighty God. It's what sets you apart from the animals and even the angels. You bear the image of your maker. And by virtue of your humanity, you have an obligation to him to render to God the things that belong to God and what belongs to God is you. And if a society answers this question properly, if a man or a woman in a modern age answers this question properly, what do I owe to God? Everything. Myself, my family, my finances, my time. 
And if you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he will add all these other things to you. You see, the problem with the society is not the taxes or the other things. The problem is that as image bearers, we owe God everything and we hold back most of it. Do you agree? As a Christian, we struggle with this, right? The people in the society are asking questions like, who cares what God says? There are people who are in institutions of learning at some places that used to actually stand for God that dismiss everything pretty much that's in the Bible. Dismiss the authority of Jesus Christ. Ah, that doesn't matter anymore. So Jesus, of course, makes, I think, the most important statement is really about us. We owe everything to God. We bear his image. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Even if we own land, it's his. If we have children, they're his. But we don't like that. <laughs> we, we sometimes say, what, what do you mean by that? Have you ever had somebody say to you, you give how much of your money to the church? 10%? Are you kidding me? They're blown away by that. Oh, oh, 10%? Yeah, and we struggle with that too, amen? <laughs> 10%, right? But really, what we owe God is so much more. You know, God said many times to the children of Israel, look, just keep, keep your animals, keep, if I could put it this way, keep your money, because what I really want is your heart. And if I've got your rituals and I don't have your heart, you're wasting your time. It's a problem with us as humans. And so the next group comes up, <laughs> after the first group was amazed, the next group in line, step right up, next. <laughs> this is, uh, is kind of what we used to do at the racquetball court. We'd have a challenge court, and you'd beat the challenger, and after they lost, you'd just wait for the next opponent to come. Next. <laughs> I think that's what Jesus is doing. And here come the Sadducees, verse 18, Mark 12. They said there was no resurrection, and they came to him, and they began questioning him. And they are going to share a story with him. The Sadducees were kind of like the liberal religious guys of the day. And they accepted the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but nothing else. And so they looked in those books and they had their own scribes, they had their own scholars, and they said, I don't see evidence of a resurrection here. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. They should have known better because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead that's pretty good evidence of a resurrection amen and he said i am the resurrection i don't just teach about it i am the resurrection and the life they came to him they began questioning him here come the sadducees uh, they some people see them as a political faction as well as a religious group they were the naturalists of the day where the pharisees believed in angels and the resurrection they were more conservative Theologically, the Sadducees were more liberal. They're the, they were the guys that were interviewed on the ABC specials at Easter time. You know, they would say, do you believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead? Well, no, Jesus, no, it wasn't literal. It was metaphorical. Jesus was just a change agent in his day. He didn't really rise from the dead. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. He predicted his own death and resurrection, so by virtue of that statement, they called Jesus a liar. You realize these guys that sound so smart on these programs aren't that smart. 
They, they just deny pretty much every fundamental doctrine. And so they come with a question, and they probably uh, asked it pretty smugly. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, this is called the Leveret Law from Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. You might want to write it down. We're going to move quickly through this. But basically, if a man uh, got married and he died, uh, the, the law of Moses said, okay, there's no children so they, the, he marries his wife, and there's no offspring. His brother was supposed to marry her, and the first offspring, male offspring, was supposed to be named for that husband so his name would not die. So that's the Leveret Law, Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. So they come, and they said, Now, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. That's true. There were seven brothers, so they break into their own story. Seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died. Now, that may scare some of you. That's not the normal thing that happens, just so you know. You don't take a wife and die, so don't isolate that. <laughs> that scared anybody. He took a wife and died. I, I mean, that just kind of <laughs> jumped out at me. No. <laughs> if, the Bible actually says if you find a wife, you find a good thing. Amen? Yeah. It's wonderful to have the beautiful wife that I have, she is so wonderful and so faithful. And so the story says he left no offspring. We don't know how long he was married, but there's a, a story in the book of Tobit. It's an apocryphal book that tells a story of a, a woman who married seven brothers, the book of Tobit, if you're interested. And on the wedding night, in each case, a demon showed up and killed each of the husbands. Can you imagine that? On your wedding night. Dead. Book of Tobit. Did they pull this from the book of Tobit? We don't know for sure. But it's a scary story. It might have been one of those scary novels of the day. Book of Tobit. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> Wedding night. So, we're not sure, but notice the second one took her, verse 21, and died, leaving behind no offspring. The third, likewise. Now, if you're number four, <laughs> would you be asking some serious questions like, Someone taste my oatmeal. And I'm going to watch you, see what it does. So you have the third, and then 22 says, All seven left no offspring. Last of all, you might want to put in your Bible, finally, <laughs> the woman died also. So all seven are dead, then she dies, and here's their question. Now they, they think they've got him, right? In the resurrection... When they rise again, which one's wife shall she be? For all seven had her as wife. I would answer, who wants her? <laughs> In the resurrection, I'd be running if I saw her. <laughs> Amen? But anyway, to go back to the story. See, they think this is awesome now. All seven had her. So, okay, Jesus, if there is a resurrection, which one is she married to in the afterlife? And they think, oh, this is, this is it. We got him. In the Mormon church, there is a teaching where they say your marriage is sealed for time and eternity in the temple and that you have a forever family. And so it's the idea that you're going to be married in the afterlife. And just a side note, the Mormon church has taught over the years that women who enter into this 
eternal state are eternally pregnant. So, just so you know, in case you've ever <laughs> decided you wanted to check out that uh, movement, you might want to consider that et eternally pregnant, which would drive the husband crazy too because she'd be asking for pickles and honey at midnight and all that. <laughs> Jesus said to them, 24, is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you don't, don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? Once again, the first question Jesus says, you hypocrites, why are you testing me? Second question, he says, you're mistaken, you don't understand the power of God, you don't understand the Bible. These are the religious experts of the day. You don't understand the Bible, you don't understand the power of God. Do you think that could be our problem? Oh, I love these stories because I, I, can, I can look at the Pharisees and say, man, what's wrong with those people? Right? Don't you love stories like that where you can say, what's wrong with him or her? And then you go, wait, wait a minute. Do I understand the scriptures and the power of God? Is that how I really live my life? So Jesus says, for when, verse 25, not if, but when they rise from the dead, Jesus says there's a resurrection. Not if, but when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. They're like angels. It's a simile. They are, not, they are not angels. They're like angels in heaven. When you go to heaven, you don't end up becoming an angel. You don't end up becoming somebody's guardian angel. Aren't you glad? I don't want to be anybody's guardian angel. Right? <laughs> you become like the angels. What are angels like? They commune with God. The good angels commune with God. They see God's face and they don't die. In the resurrection, there's no death. Jesus says, we won't die again. Amen? But we're not going to get married. And for some of you, you know, you may be secretly rejoicing right now. There's no marriage in heaven. Just don't show it to your spouse right now. It's not a... Not a good career move. So, some of you may be bummed. You're thinking, wow, I'm not going to be married to my spouse. You know, we have marriages in here that have lasted 50, 60, 70 years. You're like, wow, what's that going to be like? Will, will I know him or her in the resurrection? Yes, you will. Well, I'll have name tags. <laughs> you will. That, that you? I think the most confusing thing is going to be that I think in the resurrection we're going to be in our prime, around 18 to 20. Perhaps taller, I don't know. Some of us have forgotten how good looking we were back in the day. Or our spouses have forgotten, right? You ever, uh, some of us have had this, this situation where we, you know, we met someone when they were older and and so, and, and I've, I've stood over many caskets and at many memorial services, and they show a picture of grandpa or grandma, and then they show a picture when grandpa and grandma were younger, and the grandchildren are like, no, no, that wasn't, really? <laughs> yeah. And then they go, uh-oh. <laughs> that means we all get older, right? Yeah. Just wait. But regarding the fact, 26, that the dead rise again, it's what? A fact. 
Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush? That's the book of Exodus chapter 3. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What did God make with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He made what? A covenant. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You see, these guys only believed in the first five books of Moses, and so Jesus goes to Exodus. Amen? This is where they, they said they believed. And when God, or the angel of the Lord, said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, they were all dead. That was from the book of Genesis. Moses is at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. He's going back to try to rescue the uh, people of Israel. And God says, not I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am. In Luke 16, who do we see in uh, this in-between scenario uh, where the uh, Lazarus dies and the rich man dies? They are in Abraham's what? Bosom or side. Father Abraham, Luke 16, take a look at it, verses 19 through 31. Moses shows up on the mount of what? Transfiguration. God is not the God of the dead. If he was the God of the dead, and if the Sadducees' view of the afterlife is true, which is non-existence, that you go out of existence, how could God be true to his covenant if those guys are dead, never to rise again? Think about it. He made an eternal covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they're dead, what good is that covenant? Was it only for this lifetime? Oh, no. Jesus said, people who you think are not worthy, they're going to sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're not going to be there. Jesus said to the religious leaders, wow. You see, they are very much alive. Abraham's alive, Isaac's alive, Jacob's alive, Moses is alive. I am the God, not of the dead, but of the living. Do you know that when your eyes shut and you breathe your last, this side of heaven, if you will, you are still going to live? Do you know loved ones that you have said goodbye to who were believers are very much alive? They're probably more alive than they ever have been before. It's the hope we have. Jesus said the resurrection is a fact. It's not fiction. And in a couple days, he's going to prove it, right? He's going to go to the cross, and then he's going to rise. Now we're on limited time, but I'm going to take us to the third question because it's the most important of all, and we'll just look at it briefly. Verse 28, one of the scribes, not sure if he's a Pharisee or Sadducee, came and heard them arguing. And that, recognizing that he had answered them well, so I assume he's from the, the Pharisees because they believe in the resurrection, he asked him, what commandment is the foremost or most important of all? Some commandments are more important than others, you guys. There are some commandments that are greater than others. They have greater weight, greater importance. The Jews had 613 commandments and subcommandments. Then they were boiled down to 10 commandments and really boil down to two and we know what they are right jesus answered 29 the foremost is hero israel this is the hebrew shema from deuteronomy 6 4 the lord our god he is one lord there's one god straight from the lips of jesus you can write down deuteronomy 6 4 look at verse 30 and you shall love the lord your god that one true god with all not some all of your heart with all of your soul all of your mind, 
and all of your strength. You see, you are an image bearer, and that's what you owe him. You owe him all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is this, and it's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. He, uh, he won't name the name of God because the Jews had so much respect for God's name. And that there is no one besides him. They would just simply call him the name, Hashem. And to love him, 33, with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered how? Intelligently, wisely, intelligently. Do you know, God does care that we answer intelligently. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you come to church. God wants you to love him with all your intellectual capacities. Some of you in this room should be studying apologetics. Some of you should be learning the ancient languages. Some of you should be reading church history right now. Because you're going to be a scholar or a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist who's going to change the world. Do you believe that? And God wants you to be intelligent. He wants you to love him with all of your mind, to be studied up. And Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, 34. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Love it. The most important thing that puts everything else in perspective is to love God. This is the way you could put this, simply put. And don't hold back anything. To love your neighbor and don't hold back anything. You know, some of you, you can't even say I love you to somebody. Scares you. You just don't know how to say it. Some of you have not heard it for a while because the people around you are wounded people and they just don't know how to do it. And we hold back things from God and sometimes we're in a conversation with a friend and a a friend starts bringing up spiritual stuff or stuff that we know we could give an answer for the hope that we have and we hold back. Why? Because we don't always love God the way we're supposed to. And we don't always love others the way we're supposed to. If this land is going to heal, if our churches are going to heal, it's going to be because we start loving God with everything that we are and loving people as we love ourselves. And that's our problem. We don't do either one very well. And I would send you away on that thought, but I'm not that mean. (laughs) Since we're talking about love. Do you know that's why Jesus is about to die on the cross? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came because I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I don't love my neighbor as myself. In fact, the people that we often say are the closest people to us, that we would die for that person, that's often where we fail. And do you know why Jesus came? Because we don't love God or others the way we're supposed to. We've broken the law. The essence of the law is to love God with everything you are and to love people with everything you are. And we fail. We see it every single day. 
We struggle with it. And Jesus Christ came to demonstrate God's love. You see, he loved God with everything that he was, and he laid down his life to love his neighbor as himself, to love you. You understand this is what the gospel is about? Boiled down to its simplest terms, this is where we fail. We don't love God with everything we are. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, because all of us have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Father, would you bow with me? Help us to realize that that's why you came, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we have held back the love that you deserve. We've given you second, third, fourth, fifth best. And we've often held back the love that people so need from us because we just struggle with ourselves, with our flesh, with the enemy. God, we need a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit. We know the fruit of the Spirit is love, but we so struggle to offer our best. Sometimes we feel like we're just out of energy. Some people in this room don't feel like they have any more to give. And that's when we're going to need you to love through us, Lord. We're going to need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul afresh. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and through me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what motivates us, Lord. Lord, our nation, our churches, our marriages, our families need healing. And love is the healing balm. See, when we read 1 Corinthians 13, we read these words, love never fails, never. We failed, but your love never fails, Lord. It never gives up on me. Thank you for that. Lord, would you just breathe over this group? Would you wash us in your love? Would you renew a right spirit in us? Would you heal relationships in this room? Would you fill our hearts to overflowing with your love? Would the church rise in these days? And would we be known, Lord, they will know that you are my disciples because of your love one for another. This is the greatest thing that we could do. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. If anybody's wondering this morning, what should I live for? This is it, to love God and others with everything you are. Don't hold anything back anymore. So Lord, I'm saying those words right now and I'm praying that you'll help me this week to not hold anything back anymore. Help us, Lord. We only have a certain amount of time to make known this love, to love the people around us like we've never loved them before. Thank you that you went to the cross for all my shortcomings, all the times when I've failed to love as you love. Thank you that you paid that sin debt in full. I'm now secure in Christ, but I pray that I'll live out what you've done for me, Lord. And with your, head, your heart and head bowed, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he loves you. God so loved the world that he, he gave his son. If you would believe in him, you won't perish. 
You'll have everlasting life. You'll, you'll be resurrection, resurrected to a resurrection of life when you die. When you die, you'll go to heaven, and then on the day of resurrection, you'll be resurrected. And You can know that life right now, so don't let anything stop you. Don't let your pride, self-sufficiency stop you. If you need to rededicate your life, you can do some business with God and just say, Lord, I believe. Forgive me. Thank you for dying on that cross. Pray it right now if it's you. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for saving me. I trust you. Maybe you need to renew that trust today. Maybe you need a touch of increased faith. May the Lord meet every need. Lord, may you meet every need in this room. May you wash over your people. May you encourage the person who just opened their heart to you. We just want to say we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.